0: 10, Earls, was complicated by the revival of the savage belief that the one could smell out moral offenses. As long as the twig turned over material objects, you could imagine sympathies and efflumbia at pleasure. But when the one twirled over the scene of a murder, or dragged the expert after the traces of the culprit, fresh explanations were wanted. Lebrun wrote to Melbrun on July 8, 1689. To tell him that the wand only turned over what the holder had the intention of discovering. If the are following a murderer, the wand good-naturedly refused to distract him by turning over hidden water. On the other hand, Valemont says that when a peasant was using the wand to find water, it turned over a spot in a wood where a murdered woman was buried, and it conducted the peasant to the murderer's house. These events seem inconsistent with Le theory of intention. Melbranche replied, in effect that we had only heard of the turning of the wand over water and minerals, that it then turned if turned it did by virtue of some such force as electricity, that, if such force existed, the wand would turn over open water, but it does not so turn, and, as physical causes are constant, it follows that the turning of the rod cannot be the result of a physical cause, the only other explanation is an intelligent cause either the will of an impostor, or the action of a spirit, good spirits would not meddle with such matters, therefore either the devil or an impostor causes the motion of the rod, if it does move at all. This logic of malbranches is not agreeable to believers in the twig, but there the controversy stood, till, in 1692, Jack Simar, a peasant of Dauphin, by the use of the twig discovered one of the Lyon murderers. Though the story of this singular event is pretty well known, it must here be briefly repeated. No affair can be better authenticated, and our version is abridged from the relations of Monsieur le Procureur du Roi, Monsieur l'Abbé de Lagarde, Monsieur Pantote, Doyen de Medicines du Lion, and Monsieur Robert, Avocat Celebre, on July 5, 1692. A vintner and his wife were found dead in the cellar of their shop at Lyon. They had been killed by blows from a hedging knife, and their money had been stolen. The culprits could not be discovered and a neighbor took upon him to bring to Lyon a peasant out of Dauphine, named Jax Imer, a man noted for his skill with the divining rod, the lieutenant criminal and the procurer du Rois took Imer into the cellar, furnishing him with a rod of the first wood that came to hand, according to the procurer du Rois, the rod did not move till Imer reached the very spot where the crime had been committed, his pulse then rose, and the wand twisted rapidly, guided by the wand or by some internal sensation, Imar now pursued the track of the assassins, entered the court of the archbishop's palace, left the town by the bridge over the Rhone, and followed the right bank of the river. He reached a gardener's house, which he declared the men had entered, and some children confessed that three men whom they described had come into the house one Sunday morning. Imar followed the track up the river, pointed out all the places where the men had landed, and, to make a long story short, stopped at last at the door of the prison of Beaucaire. He was admitted, looked at the prisoners, and picked out as the murderer a little hunchback had the children described a hunchback, who had just been brought in for a small theft. The hunchback was taken to Lyon, and he was recognized, on the way, by the people at all the stages where he had stopped. At Lyon, he was examined in the usual manner, and confessed that he had been an accomplice in the crime, and had guarded the door. Imar pursued the other culprits to the coast, followed them by sea, Landed where they had landed, and only desisted from his search when they crossed the frontier. As for the hunchback, he was broken on the wheel, being condemned on his own confession. It does not appear that he was put to the torture to make him confess. If this had been done his admissions would, of course, have been as valueless as those of the victims in trials for witchcraft. This island in brief, the history of the famous Leon murders. It must be added that many experiments were made with Eimer in Paris and that they were all failures. He fell into every trap that was set for him, detected thieves who were innocent, failed to detect the guilty, and invented absurd excuses, alleging, for example, that the rod would not indicate a murderer who had confessed, or who was drunk when he committed his crime. These excuses seem to annihilate the wild contemporary theory of Chauvin and others, that the body of a murderer naturally exhales an invisible or trier peculiar indestructible atoms which may be detected by the expert with the rod, something like the same theory, we believe, has been used to explain the pretended phenomena of haunted houses, but the wildest philosophical credulity is staggered by a maitre-murtrier which is disengaged by the body of a sober, but not by that of an intoxicated, murderer, which survives tempests in the air, and endures for many years, but is dissipated the moment the murderer confesses, Believers in Aymar have conjectured that his real powers were destroyed by the excitements of Paris, and that he took to imposture, but this is an effort of too easy good nature. When Villemont defended Aymar 1693 in the book called La Occult, he declared that Aymar was physically affected to an unpleasant extent by Macherin Murtrier, but was not thus agitated when he used the rod to discover minerals. We have seen that, if modern evidence can be trusted. Holders of the rod are occasionally much agitated even when they are only in search of wells. The story gave rise to a prolonged controversy, and the case remains a judicial puzzle, but little elucidated by the confession of the hunchback, who may have been insane, or morbid, or vexed by constant questioning till he was weary of his life. He was only 19 years of age. The next use of the rod was very much like that of tipping and turning tables. Experts held it as 1694, questions were asked, and the wand answered by turning in various directions, by way of showing the inconsistency of all philosophies of the wand, it may be said that one girl found that it turned over concealed gold if she held gold in her hand, while another found that it indicated the metal so long as she did not carry gold with her in the quest, in the search for water, ecclesiastics were particularly fond of using the rod, the Marichal de Boufflers did many wells, and found no water, on the indications of a rod in the hands of the Prior d'Ornick, near guys, in 1700 a cure, near Toulouse used the wand to answer questions, which, like Planchet, it often answered wrong, the great sorcerer, or water finder, of the 18th century was one blend, he declared that the rod was a mere index, and that physical sensations of the sorcerer communicated themselves to the wand, this is the reverse of the African theory, that the stick is inspired, while the men who hold it are only influenced by the stick. On the whole, Bletton's idea seems the less absurd, but Bletton himself often failed when watched with scientific care by the incredulous. Paramel, who wrote on methods of discovering wells, in 1856, came to the conclusion that the one turns in the hands of certain individuals of peculiar temperament, and that it is very much a matter of chance whether there are, or are not, Wells in the places where it turns. On the whole, the evidence for the turning of the wand is a shade better than that for the magical turning of tables. If there are no phenomena of this sort at all, it is remarkable that the belief in them is so widely diffused. But if the phenomena are purely subjective, owing to the conscious or unconscious action of nervous patients, then they are precisely of the sort which the cunning medicine man observes, and makes his profit out of, even in the earliest stages of society once introduced, these practices never die out among the conservative and in progressive class of peasants, and, every now and then, they attract the curiosity of philosophers, or win the belief of the credulous among the educated classes, then comes, as we have lately seen, a revival of ancient superstition, for it were as easy to pluck the comet out of the sky by the tail, as to eradicate superstition from the mind of man, perhaps one good word may be said for the divining rod, Considering the chances it has enjoyed, the rod has done less mischief than might have been expected. It might very well have become, in Europe, as in Asia and Africa, a kind of ordeal or method of searching for and trying malefactors. Men like Jack Imar might have played, on a larger scale, the part of Hopkins, the witch finder. Imar was indeed employed by some young men to point out, by help of the wand, the houses of ladies who had been more frail than faithful. But at the end of the 17th century in France, this research was not regarded with favor, and put the final touch on the discomfiture of Imar. So far as we know, the hunchback of Lyon was the only victim of the twig who ever suffered in civilized society. It is true that, in rural England, the movements of a Bible, suspended like a pendulum, have been thought to point out the guilty, but even that evidence is not held good enough to go to a jury. Haughton Mythology What makes mythology mythological, in the true sense of the word, is what is utterly unintelligible, absurd, strange, or miraculous, so says Mr. Max Muller in the January number of the 19th century for 1882, men's attention would never have been surprised into the perpetual study and questioning of mythology if it had been intelligible and dignified, and if its report had been in accordance with the reason of civilized and cultivated races. What mythologists wish to discover is the origin of the countless disgusting, amazing, and incongruous legends which occur in the myths of all known peoples. According to Mr. Muller there are only two systems possible in which the irrational element in mythology can be accounted for. One school takes the irrational as a matter of fact, and if we read that Daphne fled before Phoebus, and was changed into a laurel tree, that school would say that there probably was a young lady called Aurora, like, for instance, Aurora or Konigsmark, that a young man called Robin, or possibly a man with red hair, pursued her, and that she hid behind a laurel tree that happened to be there, this was the theory of Eugen re-established by the famous Abbe Bernier. Mr. Muller doubtless means bonnier, and not quite extinct even now, according to another school, the irrational element in mythology is inevitable, and due to the influence of language on thought, so that many of the legends of gods and heroes may be rendered intelligible if only we can discover the original meaning of their proper names. The followers of this school tried to show that Daphne, the laurel tree, was an old name for the dawn, and that phoebos was one of the many names of the Sunday who pursued the dawn till she vanished before his rays. Of these two schools, the former has always appealed to the mythologies of savage nations, as showing that gods and heroes were originally human beings worshiped after their death as ancestors and as gods, while the latter has confined itself chiefly to an etymological analysis of mythological names in Greek, Latin, and Sanskrit, and other languages, such as had been sufficiently studied to admit of a scientific, grammatical, and etymological treatment. This is a long text for our remarks on Hottentot mythology, but it is necessary to prove that there are not two schools only of mythologists that there are inquirers who neither follow the path of the Abbe Bonnier, nor of the philologists, but a third way, unknown to, or ignored by Mr. Muller, we certainly were quite unaware that Bonnier and Eugenio's word are very specially concerned, as Mr. Muller thinks, with savage mythology, but it is by aid of savage myths that the school unknown to Mr. Muller examines the myths of civilized peoples like the Greeks, the disciples of Mr. Muller interpret all the absurdities of Greek myth, the gods who are beasts on occasion, the stars who were men, the men who become serpents or deer, the deities who are cannibals and parasites and adulterers, as the result of the influence of Aryan speech upon Aryan thought, men, in Mr. Muller's opinion, had originally pure ideas about the gods, and expressed them in language which we should call figurative, the figures remained, when their meaning was lost, the names were then supposed to be gods, the nomina became noumena and out of the inextricable confusion of thought which followed, the belief in cannibal, bestial, adulterous, and incestuous gods was evolved, that is Mr. Muller's hypothesis, with him the evolution, a result of a disease of language, has been primarily comparative purity to later religious abominations, opposed to him is what may be called the school of Mr. Herbert Spencer, the modern u which recognizes an element of historical truth in myths as if the characters had been real characters, and which, in most gods, beholds ancestral ghosts raised to a higher power. There remains a third system of mythical interpretation, though Mr. Muller says only two methods are possible. The method, in this third case, is to see whether the irrational features and elements of civilized Greek myth occur also in the myths of savages who speak languages quite unlike those from whose diseases Mr. Muller derives the corruption of religion. If the same features recur, are they as much in harmony with the mental habits of savages, such as Bushmen and Hottentots, as they are out of accord with the mental habits of civilized Greeks? If this question can be answered in the affirmative, then it may be provisionally assumed that the irrational elements of savage myth are the legacy of savage modes of thought, and have survived in the religion of Greece from a time when the ancestors of the Greeks were savages but inquirers who use this method do not in the least believe that either Greek or savage gods were, for the more part, originally real men. Both Greeks and savages have worshiped the ghosts of the dead. Both Greeks and savages assign to their gods the miraculous powers of transformation and magic, which savages also attribute to their conjurers or shamans. The mantle if he had a mantle of the medicine man has fallen on the god, but Zeus, or Indra, was not once a real medicine man, A number of factors combine in the conception of Indra, or Zeus, as either God appears in Sanskrit or Greek literature, of earlier or later date. Our school does not hold anything so absurd as that Daphne was a real girl pursued by a young man, but it has been observed that, among most savage races, metamorphoses like that of Daphne not only exist in mythology, but are believed to occur very frequently in actual life. Men and women are supposed to be capable of turning into plants as the bamboo in Sarawak, into animals, and stones, and stars, and those metamorphoses happen as contemporary events for example, in Samoa, when Mr. Lane was living at Cairo, and translating the Arabian Nights, he found that the people still believed in metamorphosis, any day, just as in the Arabian Nights, a man might find himself turned by an enchanter into a pig or a horse, similar beliefs. Not derived from language, supply the matter of the senseless incidents in Greek myths. Savage mythology is also full of metamorphoses. Therefore, the mythologists whose case we are stating, when they find identical metamorphoses in the classical mythologies, conjecture that these were first invented when the ancestors of the Aryans were in the imaginative condition in which a score of rude races are today. This explanation may apply to many other irrational elements in mythology. They do not say something like the events narrated in these stories once occurred. Nor a disease of language caused the belief in such events. But these stories were invented when men were capable of believing in their occurrence as a not unusual sort of incident. Philologists attempt to explain the metamorphoses as the result of some oblivion and confusion of language. Apollo, they say, was called the wolf god Lucio's by accident, his name really meant the god of light. A similar confusion made the seven shiners into the seven bears. These explanations are distrusted, partly because the area to be covered by them is so vast. There is scarcely a star, tree, or beast, but it has been a man or woman once. If we believe civilized and savage myth, two or three possible examples of myths originating in forgetfulness of the meaning of words, even if admitted, do not explain the incalculable crowd of metamorphoses. We account for these by saying that, to the savage mind, which draws no hard and fast line between man and nature. All such things are possible, possible enough, at least, to be used as incidents in story. Again, as has elsewhere been shown, the laxity of philological reasoning is often quite extraordinary, while, lastly, philologists of the highest repute flatly contradict each other about the meaning of the names and roots on which they agree in founding their theory. 200 to A by way of an example of the philological method as applied to savage mythology. We choose a book in many ways admirable. Dr. Hans Sunigom, The Supreme Being of the Khoikhoi. 200 to B This book is sometimes appealed to as a crushing argument against the mythologists who adopt the method we have just explained. Let us see if the blow be so very crushing. To put the case in a nutshell. The Hottentots have commonly been described as a race which worshipped a dead chief or conjurer suigoged his name island meaning wounded me, a not unlikely name for a savage. Dr. Han, on the other hand, laborers to show that the Hottentots originally worshiped no dead chief, but as a symbol of the infinite the Red Dawn, the meaning of the name Red Dawn, he says, was lost, the words which meant Red Dawn were erroneously supposed to mean wounded me, and thus arose the iteration and the myths of a dead chief, or wizard, suigoged, wounded me. Clearly, if this can be proved, it is an excellent case for the philological school, an admirable example of a myth produced by forgetfulness of the meaning of words. Our own opinion is that, even if go originally meant red dawn, the being, as now conceived of by his adorers, is bedizened in the trappings of the dead medicine man, and is worshiped just as ghosts of the dead are worshiped, thus, whatever his origin. This myth is freely colored by the savage fancy and by savage ideas, and we ask no more than this coloring to explain the wildest Greek myths. What truly primitive religion was, we make no pretense to know, we only say that, whether Greek religion arose from a pure fountain or not, its stream had flowed through and been tinged by the soil of savage thought, before it widens into our view in historical times. But it will be shown that the logic which connects Sui Gog with the Red Dawn is far indeed from being cogent. Sui Gog is thought by the Hottentots themselves to be a dead man. And it is admitted that among the Hottentots dead men are adored. Cairns are still objects of worship. 203a and Sui Gog lies beneath several Cairns. Again, soothsayers are believed in page 24. And Sui Gog is regarded as a deceased soothsayer. As early as 1655. A witness quoted by Hansel women worshipping at one of the Cairns of hight and another supposed ancestral being, called, the old Dutch traveler, found that the Hottentots, like the Bushmen, revered the mantis insect, this creature they called Gona. They also had some moon myths, practiced adoration of the moon, and danced at dawn. Thunberg 1792 saw the Cairn worship, and, on asking its meaning, was told that a Hottentot lay buried there, 203 B. Thunberg also heard of the wordership of the mantis or Gray Grasshopper. In 1803 Lichtenstein noted the Cairn wordership, and was told that a renowned Hottentot doctor of old times rested under the Cairn. Appleyard's account of the name God in Khoikhoi or Hottentot, deserves quoting in full, Hottentot, Tsoeicoep, soe Koep, Korna, Chicoep. And the author adds, this is the word from which the Cathars have probably derived their utisho, a term which they have universally applied, like the Hottentots, to designate the divine being. Since the introduction of Christianity, its derivation is curious. It consists of two words, which together mean the, wounded knee. It is said to have been originally applied to a doctor or sorcerer of considerable notoriety and skill amongst the Hottentots or Namots, some generations back. In consequence of his having received some injury in his knee, having been held in high repute for extraordinary powers during life, he appeared to be invoked even after death, as one who could still relieve and protect, and hence, in process of time, he became nearest in idea to their first conceptions of God. Other missionaries make old wounded knee a good sort of being on the whole, who fights gone a bad being. Dr. Moffat heard that Suikoyat was a notable warrior, who once received a wound in the knee. Sir James Alexander found that the was believed their great father lay below the cairns on which they flung boughs. This great father was height sir and, like other medicine men, he could take many forms, like Sui-Gob, he died several times and rose again. Han gives page 61 a long account of the wounded knee from an old chief, and a story of the battle between Sui-Gob, who lives in a beautiful heaven, and Garnab who lives in a dark heaven, as this chief had dwelt among missionaries very long. We may perhaps discount his remarks on heaven as borrowed. Han thinks they refer to the red sky in which Sui Gob lived, and to the black sky which was the home of Gonob. The two characters in this crude religious dualism thus inhabit light and darkness respectively. As far as we have gone, Sui Gob, like Heights Ibe among the Namas, is a dead sorcerer, whose graves are worshipped, while with a common inconsistency. He is also thought of as dwelling in the sky. Even Christians often speak of the dead with similar inconsistency. Suigode's worship is intelligible enough among a people so credulous that they took Han himself for a conjurer page 81, and so given to ancestor worship that Han has seen them worship their own father's graves, and expect help from men recently dead pages 112, 113. But, while the Khoikhoi think that Sui was once a real man, we need not share their euhemerism. More probably, like in Nkulu among the Zulus, Sui Gob is an ideal, imaginary ancestral sorcerer and god. No one man requires many graves, and Sui Gob has more than Osiris possessed in Egypt. If the Egyptians in some immeasurably distant past were once on the level of Namas and Hottentots, they would worship Osiris and as many barrows as heights Ibib and Sui are adored in later times the numerous graves of one being would require explanation, and explanations would be furnished by the myth that the body of Osiris was torn to pieces and each fragment buried in a separate tomb, again, lame gods occur in Greek, Australian, and Brazilian creeds, and the very coincidence of Suigode's lameness makes us skeptical about his claims to be a real dead man, on the other hand, when Han tells us that epical myths are now sung in the dances in honor of warriors lately slain page 103, and that similar dances and songs were performed in the past to honor Sui Gog. This looks more as if Sui Gog had been an actual person. Against this we must set page 105 the belief that Sui Gog made the first man and woman, and was the Prometheus of the Hauntats. So far Dr. Han has given us facts which entirely fit in with our theory that an ancestor were worshiping people. Believing in metamorphosis and sorcery, is a god who is supposed to be a deceased ancestral sorcerer with the power of magic and metamorphosis, but now Dr. Han offers his own explanation. According to the philological method, he will study the names of the persons, until we arrive at the naked root and original meanings of the words, starting then with Sui Gog, whom all evidence declares to be a dead lame conjurer and warrior. Dr. Han avers that Sui Gog, originally Tsunigom was the name by which the red men called the infinite. As the Frenchman said of the derivation of sure from dies, we may hint that the infinite thus transformed into a lame hottentot bush doctor is diablement change en route. To a dead lame sorcerer from the infinite is a fall indeed. The process of the decline is thus described. Suigog is composed of two roots. Su and goa. Goa means to go on, to come on. In koikoi koi goabi goa means the coming on one, the dawn, and goa bi also means the knee. Dr. Han next writes making a logical leak of extraordinary width. It is now obvious that, Gog in sui Gog cannot be translated with me. Why not? But we have to adopt the other metaphorical meaning, the approaching day, i.e. the dawn. Where is the necessity? In ordinary philology, we should here demand a number of attested examples of Gog, in the sense of dawn. But in koi koi we cannot expect such evidence, as there are probably no texts. Next, after arbitrarily deciding that all koi kois misunderstand their own tongue for that is what the rendering here of gog by dawn comes to. Dr. Han examines Xu. Su. In sui, ksu means sore, wounded, painful, as in wounded me sui gog. This does not help Dr. Han, for wounded dawn means nothing, but he reflects that a wound is red, "Su" means wounded, therefore tsu means red, therefore sui gog is the red dawn, q.e.d. This kind of reasoning is obviously fallacious. Dr. Han's point could only be made by bringing forward examples in which Tsu is employed to mean red in koi, koi. Of this use of the word Tsu he does not give one single instance. Though on this point his argument depends. His etymology is not strengthened by the fact that Tsuigog has once been said to live in the red sky. A red house is not necessarily tenanted by a red man. Still less is the theory supported by the hymn which says Tsuigog paints himself with red ochre. Most idols, from those of the Samoyeds to the Greek images of Dionysus, are and have been dauged with red. By such reasoning is Sui-Gob proved to be the red dawn, while his gifts of prophecy which he shares with all soothsayers are accounted for as attributes of dawn, of the Vedic Serenu. Turning from sui to his old enemy Gonob, we learn that his name is derived from now, to destroy, and, according to old Hottentot ideas. No one was the destroyer, but the night. Page one hundred twenty-six. There is no apparent reason why the destroyer should be the night, and the night alone, any more than why a lame broken knee should be read Page one hundred twenty-six. Besides, page eighty-five, Ganab is elsewhere explained, not as the night, but as the malevolent ghost which is thought to kill people who die what we call a natural death, and their men change into this sort of vampire, just as Elpenor in the Odyssey threatens. If buried, to become mischievous, there is another Tuganab, the manvus insect, which is worshipped by Hottentots and Bushmen. Page ninety two. It appears that the two Tuganabs are differently pronounced. However, that may be, a race which worships an insect might well worship a dead medicine man. The conclusion then to be drawn from an examination of Hottentot mythology is nearly this: that the ideas of a people will be reflected in their myths. A people which worships the dead believes in sorcerers and in prophets, and in metamorphosis, will have for its god if he can be called a god a being who is looked on as a dead prophet and sorcerer. He will be worshiped with such rights as dead men receive, he will be mixed up in such battles as living men wage, and will be credited with the skill which living sorcerers claim. All these things meet in the legend of Sui Gog, the so-called supreme being of the Hottentots. His connection with the dawn is not supported by convincing argument or evidence. The relation of the dawn to the infinite again rests on nothing but a theory of Mr. Max Muller's. His adversary, though recognized as the night, is elsewhere admitted to have been, originally, a common vampire. Finally, the Hottentots, a people not much removed from savagery, have a mythology full of savage and even disgusting elements. And this is just what we expect from Hottentots. The puzzle is when we find myths as low as the story of the incest of Hightseidic among the Greeks. The reason for this coincidence is that in drive Hahn's words the same objects and the same phenomena in nature will give rise to the same ideas whether social or mythical among different races of mankind especially when these races are in the same well-defined state of savage fancy and savage credulity Dr Hahn's book has been regarded as a kind of triumph over inquirers who believe that ancestor worship enters into myth and that the pure element in myth is the later but where is the triumph? Even on Drive Han's own showing. Ancestor worship among the Hottentots has swamped the iteration of the Infinite. It may be said that Dr. Han has at least proved the iteration of the Infinite to be earlier than Ancestor worship. But it has been shown that his attempt to establish a middle stage, to demonstrate that the worshipped Ancestor was really the Red Dawn, is not logical nor convincing. Even if that middle stage were established. It is a far cry from the worship of Dawn supposed by the Australians to be a woman of bad character in a cloak of red possum skin to the adoration of the infinite. Our own argument has been successful if we have shown that there are not only two possible schools of mythological interpretation the euhemeristic, led by Mr. Spencer, and the philological, led by Mr. Max Muller. We have seen that it is possible to explain the legend of Sui Gog without either believing him to have been a real historical person as Mr. Spencer may perhaps believe, or his myth to have been the result of a disease of languages Mr. Muller supposes. We have explained the legend and worship of a supposed dead conjurer as natural to a race which believes in conjurers and worships dead men, whether he was merely an ideal ancestor and warrior, or whether an actual man has been.